Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you, you do take our hand and that you will lead us home. That is just not a chance. That is not just wishful thinking. But you will bring us safely home to glory. And that our position before you, our security before you, our standing before you is written in stone. It's written in the blood of Christ. And because of that, we are in safe hands. We will be brought home. And Lord, as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray that your spirit will again bring glory to your name. You will be lifted up. You will be honored as God and king, prophet, priest, and king. That you will meet us where we are. Your word will be applied to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that I will get out of the way and let your spirit do his job. For it's not about me. It's all about you. In Christ name I pray. Amen. I'm sure some of you have seen the, um, the movie um, Blindside. Um, it tells the story of a young man named Michael Orr who, who grew up with 13 siblings in the, poorest, in the poorest part of Memphis, Tennessee. You know, his father was murdered. Um, his, his mother was addicted to crack cocaine. And so any, anyone in that type of environment know that eventually they're going to get put into the system. That's what happened to him and his siblings. They were put into the foster care system in Memphis, Tennessee. And so Michael grew up going from foster home to foster home. He'll run away from some, or he'll go to another one, or he'll end up staying with some friends. He eventually got to the point where he was just homeless, basically, no place to live. Now, eventually he ended up staying with uh, one of his friends sleeping on the couch belonging to his friend's father. And so his, this friend's dad eventually got Michael and his friend enrolled at Bear, Bear Crest Christian School in Memphis. It's a private Christian school in Memphis, Tennessee. And that was a turning point of Michael's life because that set the stage for him meeting a family, a good family that was going to end up impacting his life. That family would engage him. That family would relate to him. And that family would help bring restoration to his life. Restoration that he probably wouldn't have got without him. So it was during his first Thanksgiving break from school that Michael met Shane and Leanne Tui. They were going home. They were headed home from school after watching the Thanksgiving play. And so they saw Michael walking in the rain on the side of the road, cold. He only had a T-shirt and some shorts on. And so they knew him. They knew of him. The dad worked at the school as, a, as I think, helping out with the basketball team. So they knew he was at the school. He went to school with their kids. But they didn't know anything about him. They didn't have any reason to stop, to help. They could have just went on home. It was a late night. It was raining. Someone else may stop and help him. They could have been tired. No, they didn't. They stopped. They engaged him. Shane says in a U.S. Today article that his wife, Leanne, grabbed the wheel. Next came a U-turn. She cried the second she met him, and it was over. 
she engaged Michael and learned that he was going to spend the night outside the school's gym because he had no other place to sleep. And so the Tui family brought Michael into their home, and they began to relate to him. They began to learn about his childhood and his past. They began to bring restoration to his life. This family will eventually become the legal guardians of Michael, giving him family support, giving him accountability, giving him stability. Shane says again in this article that God sent him to us. Earthly explanations don't make sense. In this same article, Michael said that when he was 18, Leanne said to him, I love you. He said that was the first time someone has ever said to him, I love you. Wow. Those words alone can bring restoration when they're coming from someone who actually means them. Right? I love you. Last week, we saw, like this Tui family, we saw Nehemiah step out and engage. Now, he wasn't out in the rain, but he simply asked a question, a simple question, a question that showed he cared, a question that showed he had concern for his Jewish people and for their city. Do you remember the question? What did he say? I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped. I asked him concerning the Jews who, who survived the exile. I asked him concerning Jerusalem. What are the conditions of my people now that they're back in their homeland? What kind of answer did he get? Did he get a good answer from his brother? Did he tell them that, hey, man, things are great, you know, that the temple's restored, we are living it up? No. He did tell him, People are in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. Things are not good, brother. Our people are not doing well. So he engaged. Now the question for us this morning is what is going to be Nehemiah's response to this bare report? How is he going to respond? What is he going to do now? Now that he has his answer about the conditions of Jerusalem, the conditions of his fellow Jews. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. This is his response. Here's God's word. As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In this one verse, we see Nehemiah beginning to move from engaging to relating to his neighbors, to his people. We see that in his response. He had two responses to this bad news, to the shocking news about the conditions of his people. He had an emotional response. That's the first response we see from him. Keep in mind that when Nehemiah ran into his brother that day, it, it was just a routine day for him. And when he engaged him with that question about the conditions of the Jews in Jerusalem, 
you know, you got to think that he was not expecting to hear what he actually heard. Hoping for something, some better news. It's possible that he, he had a different picture of their living conditions. Like I said last week, the Jewish people, they have been back in Jerusalem for over a century now. It wasn't like they just went back the week before. They've been living there a long time. We realize that a long time they have been there. Two returns happened, one under Zerubbabel and one with Ezra. So the people were already there. And so you would, want, you would think if a century has passed, the living conditions should be better. I shouldn't be hearing this type of report. Shouldn't things be better, brother? They were not better. The Jews who survived the exile were in great trouble and shame. The walls and its gates have not been restored, even though a century has passed. This is shocking news. It stops Nehemiah in his tracks. It changes his attitude. It alters his whole day. It even redirects the course of his life. Now, we're going to flesh all that out later on. This information changes him. It was one of those, oh my goodness, moments. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Is that bad? Yes. He said, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. Nehemiah felt grief, hurt for his people. He identified with them and what they were going through. This was not some false sense of a compassion. It was not some hyper-emotionalism. It was genuine emotion. This is him relating to their pain, relating to their trouble. Sympathy. Real compassion. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, we got to turn into crybabies in order to relate to people, right? It doesn't mean you, you have to have the same emotional response as Nehemiah to relate to people. It simply means we should have compassion, sympathy to the hardships of others. Because here's the thing, if you, it, it, you're going to find it real difficult to truly relate to people if you have no compassion on them. You may relate to them, but will you relate to them in a healthy way? Because you can, you can engage people and relate to them, and you cause more damage than you, than you actually intend it to cause. Because you don't, you're not doing, you don't have no compassion. Because you can't help people and insult them and demean them at the same time. You do realize that, right? I can help you, talk to you, and I can insult you and demean you as I'm doing it. And I look down on you as I'm doing it. Compassion is what we have to have for each other, fellow family members, strangers. Compassion. And this emotional response by Nehemiah, he was just being, being, this is being human. I mean, he was not some heartless, emotional robot. What do you do when you receive bad information about loved ones? People you actually care about. What do you do? Do you just say, ah, it's their fault? Um, Well, too bad. Sucks to be you. <laughs> no. You feel their pain. You hurt with them. 
You relate to them. All of us have been stopped in our tracks by something we heard and saw or seen. All of us have had to sit down, take a moment to process some shocking information or just breathe. All of us have had an emotional response about something we read, heard, or saw that brought us to tears. Whether it's a child that you know is going to sleep in a cold house tonight. Whether it's a single mom getting ready to be evicted. Death of a loved one. A child that you know is going to be abused when they go home and you can't stop it. Marriage problems of close friends and relatives. You're trying to help, but you see you can't help them. They're not taking your advice. A friend who is destroying his life and his family, and you're trying to tell him you're falling up the cliff, brother, but he ain't listening. And so you, you see and hear and read all these things. Now, these are the people that are close to us, we see. All of this goes on. The list can go on forever and ever. You know why it goes on forever and ever? Because the world we live in, here's something that you're going to have to accept. And I'm going to always remind you of. You're going to see these things, read about these things, hear about these things forever. Because the world we live in is going to always be broken and fallen until Jesus comes back. Always. The world we live in is going to always be broken and fallen until Jesus comes back. And so because of that, things happen. Fallen things happen. And that's the first thing you're going to have to accept when you try to engage others in their pain and relate to others in their pain, that you're not going to be able to fix it. You're not going to be able to save everybody. I woke up this Thursday morning about 5 a.m. You know, I was, it's Thursday. I was excited about my day. I had meetings lined up. You know, I'm, 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 I stick to my calendar. That's the type of person I am. And I was looking forward to getting my sermon done, and it was going to be a good day. But as you know, Thursday was not a good day for Alex because all my plans got canceled because of the snow. <laughs> and the snow day. And the schools and the roads were closed, and I didn't handle the situation very well at all. I didn't handle it very well at all. Now, you, I was mad. I was upset with Huntsville City. I was upset with the school system. I was mad with the weatherman. I was mad with the Lord. I felt like everybody was conspiring against me to make me have a bad day. <laughs> it was not one of my finer moments. I was in sin. I was self-centered, self-absorbed. I was in Alex's universe. And it wasn't until later on that day that the Spirit brought me to repentance. I didn't want to repent. I felt justified by being anger, angry. But the Spirit convicted me. And, and here I am. I'm complaining about missing work and, and my plans not going together. And, and the Spirit was like, how about those people in the city who don't have a job, Alex? to go to the next day. You're right. How about those people who had, who had to actually sleep in the snow last night? Alex, unlike you. Oh, you got me again. How about those people who actually got it worse than you? Alex, got me a third time. And he was, the spirit was right. 
there are those who actually got it worse than me. And I was humbled. I repented. I repented. And every day I'm learning that I have to remind myself to get over myself. Every day. You will too. Every day you're going to have to remind yourself to just get over yourself. There's always somebody who got it worse than you. A good friend of mine in South Carolina, you know, he, he, when his son went to college, he went to the Citadel, and his son was having a hard time adjusting to the Citadel's environment. And one of the things my friend told his son was this. He said, find someone who has it worse than you and help that person. Because there's always somebody that has it worse than you. Find out who that is and help that person. Why did he tell him that? Because it was going to bring perspective to his son's life. Get outside of yourself, son. Because there's always somebody else who got it worse than you do. You see, whenever you get outside of yourself and begin to engage other people, that is what you're going to actually realize. You're going to actually realize there are people in this city, in my neighborhood, that my kids go to school with, who got it worse than me. There are families in this city, in your neighborhoods you live in, people you see in the grocery store or whatever, who has it worse than you. You're going to see stuff, hear stuff, and you're either going to brush it off, try to block it out of your mind, or eventually some of the stuff is going to grab hold of you emotionally. And here's the thing. When hardships and trials grab hold of you emotionally, you're going to start to feel like you're in an emotional ping-pong machine because you're going to be all over the place emotionally. What, I, I need to help. How can I help? What do I need to do, God? You're going to be bouncing all over the place. You're going to move from compassion to feeling, like, to feeling guilty because you got more stuff than other people have. Why do I got to I'm going home to a, a warm house, but this person is not. So you're going to go from compassion to feeling guilty, joy to frustration, hope to hopelessness. You're going to want to take on every situation, every case, every issue. But you can't do it all. You can't fix it all. And within yourself. So what do you do when these issues, situations, whether it's a family, close friend, family member, a stranger, what do you do when you see this stuff and hear this stuff? You sit down, take a deep breath, and do what Nehemiah did. He moved to action. But it wasn't to fix it. He did something else. He had two responses to this, this, to this news. An emotional response, and then he had a spiritual response to the situation. What did he say? He didn't say, I wept and mourned for days, and I'm going to Jerusalem to fix it. I wept, mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Do you see what Nehemiah does here. He, he, he just, he didn't have a fleeting moment of concern and compassion, shed a few tears and forgot and moved on with his life. He truly identified, he truly related, he truly engaged, he cared deeply. And he did not immediately run off to Jerusalem to fix the situation. See that? We'll flesh that out too later. He didn't immediately run off. Don't forget Nehemiah had an important job, right? Cut there to the king. And just because he heard about some horrible conditions about his people, it did not eliminate his current responsibilities. Hear that? 
Nehemiah's job, cupbearer to the king. That was his job. And just because he just learned about the conditions of his homeland and his people, that information did not eliminate his current responsibilities. He still had a job. He still had to go to work the next day, the day after, and the day after with that new information. And another thing, he could just go before the king and be like, let me get, let me talk to you for a minute, king. You know, I just heard some bad information about my people. And now my God, Yahweh, he has called me to go. So, well, you know, I'm going to need to take six months off <laughs> to go do this, to go fix this wall. Now, no. No. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You see, we try to see what's going on here in its historical context. This is history. This, this actually took place. See it, see it in this historical context. See, because even though Nehemiah had a personal relationship with Yahweh, he was also under the authority of the Persian king as well. He was his boss, which means Nehemiah could have felt called. He could have been willing to go. But if the king didn't say it, he was not going anywhere. At all. So what that means? It means from Nehemiah's perspective, it seemed to be impossible for him to do anything. He knew and understood the situation that the odds were against him. They seemed impossible if he operated in his own strength. You see, he, began, he realized that something supernatural had to take place in order for him to, get, to go to Jerusalem. Yahweh had to intercede. Yahweh had to intercede. The Lord God had to be the one to make the impossible possible. Nehemiah was willing, but he didn't, he didn't have the power to control to make it happen. You understand that? Neither do we. And one of the things I love about you know, Nehemiah and Ezra and all the books that's post-exile, something we talked about in Sunday school, you actually get to see God working. You see God working in history in pagan lands. You're seeing God, even though you have a pagan king in Artaxerxes, he still does, he does not operate outside the sovereignty of our God. I don't care if he does bow down to idols. There is still only one God who controls all things, and his name is Yahweh. So, the second response to the bad news, a spiritual one. He turned to the Lord. One commentator says, Nehemiah demonstrates his faith by turning to the fount of his resources in prayer. Do you turn to the fount of your resources in prayer when you receive negative information, bad news, or do you turn into Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It? Which do you do? He intercedes for his people, standing in the gap for them, praying for guidance from the Lord God. He continued fasting and praying. Fasting, you know, we all fasted before. You know, you abstain for food for a day or two, you know, for religious purposes. Williamson says that fasting was added to intercession as an effective means of strengthening the force of prayer. Fasting is good. Andrew Murray says, prayer and fasting are like two hands. Whenever we pray, it is as though we are placed, reaching out and putting one hand on the mercy seat. 
The mercy seat, it symbolizes God's forgiving presence on the Ark of the Covenant. And he says when you fast, you take your other hand off the legitimate things of the world and cast all earthly support aside and you place both hands on the mercy seat of God. Prayer, fasting, together. Nehemiah placing both hands on the mercy seat of God. For he knew in himself he could not accomplish what needed to be done. He could not do it in his own strength. And so he's casting all he has on God's mercy, crying out to Yahweh to do it. Please intervene, my God. He prayed and fasted before the God of heaven. God of heaven. That's an interesting title for Yahweh. And during this time of Israel's history, it was used a lot, particularly by the Jews when they engaged Gentiles. And here, dealing with the Persians. One commentator says, God of heaven suggests that Yahweh had the great power to implement his purposes toward his people. Unlike the pagan gods of the land, Nehemiah's God was actually in heaven. Psalm 115 says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does all he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. Ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. Hands, they have hands, but no, they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound. Those who make them will be like them to all who trust in them. Even though Nehemiah lived and worked in the pagan land, he knew that his God was God and that when he prayed, his God heard him because he's not an idol. He is Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. He is not silver or gold made by human hands. Whenever I put Madison to bed at night, I have four questions I ask her. Four questions. One, I says, who made you, Madison? God. Who died on the cross for you, Madison? Jesus. How many gods are there, Madison? One. Why is that important? One. One, Daddy. There's one God. And always going to be one God. And his name is Yahweh. He is in heaven and he does what he pleases and his sovereignty rules over all. He has the power to make the impossible possible, people. Even working the heart of a pagan king, like I said. This is what Nehemiah is trusting in. Not in his own strength, but the strength of his God. So he waits on him in prayer. How long do you think Nehemiah spent in prayer? How long? Was it a week? Make an intercession. How long do you think he spent praying about this? Now, he eventually meets up with the king. He eventually have a meeting with the king. If you know the story, then you realize that. But how much time passed before he heard the news about Jerusalem and, he, and then he goes and meets the king about the situation? Four months. Four months passed from the time he heard the news from his brother to the time he actually met with the king about it. 
four months. Now, don't sit here and think he prayed and fasted four straight months without all day, every day. I mean, come on, he is human, so he has to eat. And don't think that Nehemiah is some super saint that you need to be like. That's a tendency when you read about the Old Testament, you try to be like the Old Testament people. No, there's only one example that you follow, that's Christ. The point here is that Nehemiah took his emotions to his God. And he waited patiently for his God to move. That's the point. He had persevering prayer for the situation. Persevering prayer. Persevering to God in prayer about whatever is on your heart. Whatever it is. And for us believers, those who know Christ, this should be the same way that we respond toward the issues and situations that, that grab hold of us. Now, every situation is not going to grab hold of you, but some of them will. But do you have the humility to hand it over to God in prayer? Praying about it, fasting about it, placing both of your hands on the mercy seat. Because I'm telling you, you don't have the resources, people. You don't have enough resources, enough strength, enough stamina to really, in within yourself, help those who are hurting if the Spirit and God does not move. You need to take that into consideration. Because if you don't, you're going to have a lot of sleepless nights. Because you're trying to fix it yourself. When you engage other people and begin to relate to them, fall down on your knees before your God in heaven and persevere with him in prayer. Be an intercessor. Do you realize that Jesus still intercedes for you? Paul says in Romans, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he is indeed interceding for us still. Like that, we intercede for others through prayer. Through prayer. And, as a, and, a, and the reality that you've got to accept, people, and i got to accept, that you're not going to be able to die on every hill. You're not going to be able to fight every battle. You're going to fight some. You're not going to be able to do everything. We've got to learn to filter our lives, life experiences through the gospel, through prayer, asking the Father for guidance. Because he might not call you to do this, but he may call you to do that. But if you never pray about it, how are you going to know? Because you can't do everything. If God has called you, then he's going to make a way for it to happen. He always does. All of us can look back through our lives and see how God made a way for us. I don't care what it is we went through. He always made a way. And so whatever facing you now, whatever situation you're going through now, if you look at something that you feel like, I don't know how God's going to move, he's going to move. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it looks like the enemy is winning. He ain't winning. There's always things going on behind the scenes that you can't see. We're not infinite. We're not Jesus. We're not God. We're not the Holy Spirit. That's why he says we have to live by faith, people. Not by sight. Not by sight. Can't lose sight of that. He will move. And I know one of the frustrations that we have is that he don't move when we want him to move. Usually that's the, the battle. But we see things. We want God to do it now. We want God to fix it now. 
fix it now. Fix the family now, Father. Fix the, the, the situation for this kid now, Father. And then we get impatient and frustrated with him. I've been there. I'll probably be there this week with him about it. But I still have to always go back that he is an on-time God. He's going to move, but he ain't going to move because Alex said move. He, all, his, he has purposes that we can't see. We only see the here and now. He sees things from eternity perspective. Got to go back to Romans 8, 28, where it says he works all things to what? To the good of those who love him. That's what you got to go through when you see those situations that people are going through, that God got to be working something here. And I don't know how it's going to fit together. I don't know how it's going to work to the good. But, Lord, you, you said it's going to work to the good. And I got to trust in that. Got to have faith in that. And whatever it is, we live by faith. Let us pray. Father God, we, we too have these type of responses, Lord. And we have an emotional response, but we should also have a spiritual one. Because we're not here alone. We have to filter wherever we go through, through you. Turn it over to you. The source of our resources, the fount of our resources is you. You are God. You created this world. I didn't. None of us did. And you care more about what people go through than we do. I don't care how much compassion that we have. We can't out-compassion you, but you died for everybody. You died for the sins of the lost. We did not. We did not. And so we need a little perspective here and realize we are on the winning side. We realize that our God is not an idol, that he is at work even when we can't see it. And I thank you, Father, that when we come to your word, we can see through history, the history of your people, that you are constantly moving. And you even use pagan kings, Lord, for your purposes. Because you're God and you can do that. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for um, how you have restored us. We thank you for how you raised people up like Nehemiah to use for your glory. And we pray, Father, that as we go out this week, Lord, we're going to see things, we're going to hear things. Give us compassion for one another. Give us compassion for our family. Give us compassion for those that we're going to run into. Help us to relate. Help us to turn to you about how we should relate and engage and help. Because we can't do everything, Lord. But you can. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.